Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us grace as we begin to consider this event in the life of the first century church that would echo for millennia, that still has profound bearing on who we are, Lord and has also affected the mechanisms that have protected the church for these 2,000 years, the various different ecumenical councils that have rejected heresy. I pray that we learn the lessons from your word that you have given to us about the nature of false teachers and their teaching and about what we are to be as heralds of the truth, as watchmen on the wall. Give us grace. Lord, I pray. I pray for a working of the Holy Spirit. I pray that your people, Lord, would be sanctified, and I pray for those who are here that don't know you, that they would come to know you even today. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, When last I spoke to you, which was a couple weeks ago, we concluded Acts 14, and we focused there on that great statement, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And of course that statement carried tremendous weight considering the man who made it and the tribulations that he had just experienced. And that was, of course, the Apostle Paul who had been stoned, supposedly to death, but not actually. And then he gets up the following day, he marches 40 miles And he continues to preach that same gospel for which he just suffered so profoundly. And in this, Paul exemplified the virtue that he called the disciples around him to practice. And this is critical because there is a vast difference between saying a great thing and doing a great thing. And in Paul's example, you have both, but that's extremely rare. Much more often, you have the former without the latter. You have the big talk without the big walk. And when that is the case, as it often is, we rightly have reservations about the grand talk of the untested, or at least we should. We should not take it for granted that those who can't do actually can teach, because there are, in fact, many categories and kinds of knowledge that a person cannot possess apart from experience and even success in a given arena. While on the other hand, we should, and if we are wise, do hasten to listen to men whose grand talk 
has been matched and thus validated by their actions, and Paul is such a man. He is perhaps the epitome of such a man. And this is true because Paul did not here say, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God in the way that an uninitiated private fresh out of boot camp might when he speaks about exploits in war. No, Paul says this as a war-hardened soldier whose experience and personal courage made that great truth resonate with his original hearers as I trust it did with us when we studied these things. Well, as we continue forward in this ongoing narrative of the history of Christian origins, you'll be glad to know that after Paul survived his stoning, he was blessed with some degree of reprieve, which is not to say that he was not busy at work after this occurred. Rather, he was busy at work amongst friends, friends who could give him rest for his soul. Indeed, these were actually much more than friends. These were the brethren. And for a significant period of time, he remains with them. We learned of this in Acts 14, 28. It says there a long time, but we know from charting the history that that was a period of about a year. And he has, no doubt, sweet fellowship with them, a time of mutual spiritual strengthening between he and his fellow Christians, of which he wrote to the Romans. Romans 1, 11 through 12, he says, I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. Well, that's the part that you expect because he is the apostle and the purveyor of great spiritual things. But he goes on and he says, that is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. So he is blessing and he is being blessed. But this season of refreshing was not going to last forever given the side of heaven that he is still on at this point. And so soon it would be replaced by yet another war. And this one was unique in the kind that it was to the experience of the church up to now. At this point, the church has been tested in many ways. And through all of it, they have proven time and again that their love of Christ was greater than their desire for anything in this life, including life itself. But as we enter Acts chapter 15, the threat is coming from inside of the visible church, and it is doctrinal. And the doctrinal dispute here is over no less than how must a man be saved, which is, of course, the seminal issue here, right? Because if we get this wrong, kind of renders all the other issues moot because we're all damned. But although this conflict is occurring within the church, it is being instigated by unbelievers who had become Christ imitators and not Christ imitators in the way of which uh, Paul spoke, in the way in which all of us should endeavor to be, but imitators in the way of wolves who have draped the skin of a slaughtered sheep over their shoulders in order to be seen as sheep themselves that they might successfully devour more sheep having crept in among them. And so Paul is called by Christ to yet another great fight and this will culminate in the first and greatest ecumenical council. Not of Orange, not of Chalcedon, not of Nicaea, but of Jerusalem. And this first one will also establish the patterns that all the others will follow. Now, I deliberated quite a bit, quite a bit, over how to structure these addresses, and I do mean addresses plural because we will be in this section for a while. That's a very difficult passage and section to put in order, not because of the magnitude of what's occurring here, which is profound. That just makes me excited to study it and to preach it, but because of all of the moving parts here. 
all of the independent actors and their particular interests. And eventually, though, I settled on taking you today through an introduction of the various different players involved, their interests, their perspectives, with a mind that through this in the coming weeks we will be prepared to really grasp the necessity and the purpose and the adjudication and the outcome of the Jerusalem Council. But today we won't even begin to touch the Council itself, nor therefore its judgments. For today, and probably for two weeks after this, we are going to have our hands very full with simply gaining an understanding of the events that preceded and necessitated the Council, so the conflict that made the Council essential and inevitable. So that's how we're going to approach this, but first to the text. We're going to read all the way from Acts 15.1 to verse 35, then we will isolate and study the relevant individuals and groups afterwards. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning the issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. All the people kept silent. And they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking, James answered and said, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related, that would be Peter, how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may see the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by his name says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. 
since we have heard that some of our number, to whom we gave no instruction, have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. It seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So then they were sent away. They went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. And now, as promised, we are going to start to examine the various groups and individuals present here. As I have it, there are five distinct parties involved in this. There is the protagonist and the antagonist. There are the adjudicators, and then there are two very confused parties stuck in the middle who are in desperate need of clarification. So these are the five. But even as I speak of five distinct parties, with exception of one of these, I am referring to Christians exclusively. This account deals mostly with different categories of believers, believers who have different backgrounds and beliefs on certain issues, come from different traditions, they have different levels of understanding about the Word and what it teaches, about the nature of moving from old covenant to new, but all of these are trying to serve Christ with sincerity. Nonetheless, though, they are finding themselves on different sides of this conflict because though they are sincere, sincerity is never enough. Truth still matters, and truth matters most. But while there are different groups that play in Acts 15, there is only one group that occupies an entirely different faction, and they are the antagonists in this account. And it is with them that Luke opens this chapter, and it is with them that we will open our study. And then we will conclude today with an examination of the party that stands in opposition to these children of the devil on behalf of Christ and his kingdom. And then next week, we're going to continue uh, down this path. We'll consider, I think, at this point, just the two parties that are stuck in the middle, Christians who are confused and very much in need of help. But for an introduction to the villains of this account, look again to verse 1. Some men came down from Judea, meaning down to Antioch, and they began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now these men are the same false brethren that established themselves as false teachers with no apostolic guidance or permission whatsoever. Here is an excerpt later given to the Gentile converts to help calm them down and comfort them after these lying charlatans told them that a little foreskin goes a real long way as in all the way to heaven. Verses 24 and 25. Since we, James and Peter, have heard that some of our number, professing Christians from Jerusalem, to whom we gave no instruction, have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls by telling you all that you're going to hell because you're not circumcised. Seem good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. 
Now, if you have ever read the book of Galatians, as I trust all of you have, you might be wondering if these are the same men of whom Paul writes there. And the answer is yes, in some places. But all of the book of Galatians does speak to the same kind of men that Paul warns of here who preach the same false gospel. Galatians was written after the Jerusalem Council, but it covers Paul's visit to Jerusalem as recorded in Acts 15, and the testimony of these men is directly referenced in Galatians chapter 2. Chapter 2 of Galatians, verses 2 through 5, and skimming. He writes, I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. It was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. So these in Acts 15 are those same false brethren. This is the faction that we know of as the Judaizers. And their gospel so-called, is a representation of a a synergy of Moses' teaching in Christ, but in reality it's just a rejection of both and a damnable heresy. And to gain a window into their character, even more so than is revealed by their false gospel, really consider the way that they have gone about teaching this heresy. Did they profess these things in the light, or did they whisper them in the shadows? They whispered them in the shadows away from the authority and the wisdom of the apostles back in Jerusalem? And here's another question. Did they pursue the stronger believers or did they pursue those that they believed to be weaker? The answer is they pursued those that they believed to be weaker. And in this, they very well lived down to the description of our Lord of wolves in Matthew 7.15. Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Do wolves seek the stoutest and the strongest sheep to eat when they attack the flock? Or do they go for the weakest ones first? They go for the weakest ones always. And it's not that they wouldn't enjoy eating the uh, well-developed meat of the strongest and the stoutest, but they are first and foremost opportunists. And so they're going to get a little something in their stomachs, then risk losing the meal entirely by pursuing those who are able to successfully resist or evade them. Our true believers are very much different than this. We relish the opportunity to see Christ cast down strongholds, and we're very well convinced that he has the power to do so because we have, like, actually met him. And so we will go to the strongholds. We will go to the city gates. We're not going to try to work our way around the backside and find some small entrance. We have a battering ram. And that battering ram is the true gospel. It is the word of God. And Peter follows this line in the way that he approaches the Sanhedrin. He's not afraid of them. They have all the institutional power there, but he doesn't care. He knows that he has the truth and that they don't. And he knows the gospel has the power to change any heart no matter the position of the man that you're talking to. Paul also uh, exemplifies this to the effect of the conversion of the Roman prefect, Sergius Paulus, if you remember, back in Acts 13. But the thing about false teaching, the thing which it cannot overcome, ultimately, is that it is false. So it can bloviate, it can obfuscate, it can threaten, and it will do all of these things. But even so, it's still just not true. And that's insurmountable so long as the truth is spoken in opposition to it. Because all truth needs in order to overcome false teaching 
Is the oxygen and the sunlight necessary to do so? If it is given these things, it will win out because it has all the benefits of consistency, cogency, verifiability, falsifiability. And the truth at primary issue here is that of salvation by grace alone. And it is easily proved by an honest reckoning of Scripture and rightly dividing the word of God does require great effort and meaningful study, but the result of that effort and study is a clear presentation that isn't straining to make sense of the senseless or ignoring plain statements. But lies are not consistent in any way similar. And so the liars telling them must avoid stating them openly amongst those who have the tools to refute them. And the only exception to this rule is when the liars have captured all of the institutional power. In this event, they will still suppress the truth, but they will proselytize with their lies right out in the open because nobody will be permitted to oppose them, to counter them. That was the situation with the Sanhedrin for a long time until along came Jesus and his apostles who just broke the rules and did it anyways. But in this context, the shoe was on the other foot. The church now has a kind of institutional power, and at the center of it are the apostles who were appointed by Christ, and knowing that the apostles were too strong to be confused and manipulated, these false teachers went to relatively new believers in Antioch because they believed they had a better chance of picking off some of them than the believers whose faith was more established back in Judea and Jerusalem. Now they were wrong to the praise of the glory of God's grace in that they were unable to steal anybody's souls from Jesus because that's not the way that this works. If we are held by him, we belong to him, and he will hold us forever. So none of them were lost. But the Judaizers' estimation of the relative weakness of the Antiochian believers was not wrong. And so they did succeed in causing them real grief for a time. Verses 24 and 25. We, James and Peter, have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words unsettling your souls. And to give you some sense of how upset and confused these believers are, the word for disturbed used here is the same word that's used to describe the disposition of the disciples in John 14.1, having been told that the crucifixion of our Lord was imminent. And the word for unsettling here is used nowhere else in the New Testament, but in classical Greek literature it does refer to a military force pillaging a town. It also refers to financial bankruptcy. So their souls here are in deep unrest because now they're questioning whether or not they even have saving faith. Are they amongst the brethren at all? Now why is there this play in the joints that Satan has so successfully exploited? Well, because new believers are According to Paul in Ephesians 4.14, children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. And why is this spiritual immaturity uh, to be fled from? Well, because when you are mature, you are able to withstand these kinds of attacks. And you strengthen yourself by immersing yourself in Scripture. And you take care to do this aggressively so that you may become mature as soon as possible because Satan always has some demon waiting in the wings who is very happy to shipwreck your faith through lies, but he cannot do that if you close up the chinks in your armor 
by girding your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And the gospel of peace, it should be noted, is only a gospel of peace if it is a gospel of grace. Because if it is not a gospel of grace, then it is a gospel of works, and then nobody gets to be at peace because the only one capable of working well enough to get to heaven was Christ. This is our peace. This was the Antioch believers' peace, but it got stolen from them by these liars for at least a time. But this refutation and defense is also not something that any Christian needs to attend to alone. It is right for me to say that the immature need to become mature as fast as they can. But of course, if we're evangelizing the way that we are supposed to, we will always have the immature amongst us. At least we pray that we will, right? Because the alternative is just that nobody's getting converted. Therefore, nobody is in that state, even temporarily, as we help them out of it. But by the way, even mature believers are still sheep, correct? And so to be a sheep is what? It is to be fretful. It is to consistently require direction. It is to need a constant reminder that the shepherd is there, that he abides with you, that he will care for you. And we are all sheep in this life. It's not though, as though some of us at some point matriculate into lions. There's only one lion in the Christian faith. His name is Jesus. He comes from the tribe of Judah. The rest of us are still in that fretful, fearful, and at times anxious condition of being sheep. So because all Christians, and especially new converts, need protection, Christ has given his people shepherds. And that leads us to the consideration of our protagonists, and they would, of course, be Paul and Barnabas, but Luke emphasizes Paul especially, and so shall we. And we will also emphasize Paul here because we have his testimony in his epistles to help us fill in some of the blanks that Luke has left open. So to start here, look at Acts 15, verses 1 and 2 again. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. I'll pray tell, what exactly do you think is involved in great dissension and debate? Or if not exactly, generally, what do you think is included in that? Well, from our text, we're not told. But neither are we left ignorant of the likely and even certain content of this because Paul's responses in particular are recorded in multiple of his epistles, but especially Galatians. And we will see this, but before we look there, I want to make you aware of something common to writers and authors, and I think it will help you understand some things moving forward. Anybody who writes, especially on an issue or with respect to a subject that they traffic in regularly, uh, typically ends up putting things on paper that are arguments that they have formed at some time previous. Either that they have thought or that they have stated and that came out in some conversation. For example, I write a thorough outline for a sermon every week. And the reason why my outlines are thorough, I don't manuscript, but the reasons why they're thorough is because of what I understand preaching to be, which is unearthing wonders from the Word, giving you specifics. If I gave you know, general, vague 
moral lessons, I could scribble that on a napkin in three points. But I don't, so I end up writing a lot. I think this one's at about 7,000 words, just my outline. It ends up being a lot more when I actually deliver it because none of the things that I'm saying to you right now, for example, are on that outline. But much of the, even at times, exact phrasing that I use is borrowed from previous meditations of mine or even conversations where I was speaking and then I happened upon a statement that I thought really clarified an issue or was particularly helpful or maybe even pithy. All of this to say that the refutations written in Galatians were certainly not first articulated in Galatians, and that is probably true down to the exact wording, especially considering how regularly Paul argued these same points against these same heretics. So with this understood, let us gain from Paul what Luke leaves us only to guess at. Paul says to the Galatians or the Judaizers, Galatians 1, 6 through 9, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again, and there is actually an explicit acknowledgement that this is not the first time he has used these arguments. But he continues, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. He is to be damned. Paul says, let the ones who are so eager to condemn you have their damnation made certain. Let them not be forgiven. Let the angel of the Lord enter their homes because they are unprotected by the Lamb's blood and let them be cast into hell. What a thing for a minister to say. What a posture for a minister to take. Paul, the great preacher of grace, states under inspiration of the Holy Spirit that it is his desire that these men receive no grace. No grace for you, no redemption, no forgiveness, not now, not in the future, you may enter into the everlasting wrath of God. Now, how is that consistent with being a Christ-like shepherd? Well, it happens to be exactly consistent with being a Christ-like shepherd. Do you remember what our Lord taught in Matthew 18? About new believers, about children in the faith. You must become as one of these little children if you are to enter the kingdom of heaven. What did he say about those who sought to do these infants in the faith harm. It has application to literal children. But the primary lesson is to spiritual children. What happens to them? They have millstones, tongue hung around their neck. Well, these fellows already have millstones hung around their necks. And in fact, they are standing on the dock, waiting only for God to push them into hell. And that is all that Paul is saying, and he is right to say it. Psalm 23, of course, acknowledges the use of two instruments by the shepherd. And there in that passage, that pertains most directly to the good shepherd of John 10, but all shepherds have these. And the one instrument is the shepherd's staff, and this is for the sheep, and we help pull people back in line. We help direct them to where they ought to go. This is comforting to them. This is the ministry of the word, of course, and this is what is employed by Paul in, say, 1 Corinthians 13, where he speaks with great gentleness, great love. But the other instrument that we are given and that we are not given an option not to wield is the rod. 
and the rod is for skull cracking. And the skulls that it cracks belong to the wolves, but also to the dogs. And to this point, and we'll skip right back to Galatians after this, but here is Paul in Philippians 3, 2, apparently dealing with the same excrement on a different day. My brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. Again, he traffics in these arguments regularly. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Uh, If you are very familiar at all with the first century historical social context, you know that calling somebody a dog was going out of your way to insult them. This is one of the worst insults that you could levy at somebody. And there were social strictures in place that would prevent this, if not just Christian virtue. But Paul here still speaks this way because these men are that deviant. And in fact, it isn't just Paul who ignores the social strictures. It is the Holy Spirit of God. And he does this not in contradiction to Christian virtue, but in keeping with it. But as difficult as it may be to think of a more insulting statement than calling somebody a dog, without question, telling them they can go to hell for preaching a different gospel accomplishes that. Which brings us back to Galatians, where the hits just keep on coming, and the next one is familiar to us by now. But I will restate it anyhow. Galatians 2, verses 2 through 5 again, and skimming, he writes, I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, It was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. And here is what happened that one time when even the shepherds of the sheep started to get carried away by the wolves. Galatians 2, 11 through 21. When Cephas, the Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews... How is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. And here's Galatians 3.10. Curses everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. That would be the Judaizers. Galatians 4.17. They, the Judaizers, eagerly seek you, not commendably, 
but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. In other words, they are pulling you away from the Messiah that they may establish themselves as Messiahs unto you. It is your worship that they are after. And though I could read much more, I would be remiss if I did not remind you of this. Galatians 5, 10 through 12. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other views, speaking to the Galatian Christians, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling, of the bro- stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. So, we need not wonder what was involved in that great dissension and debate. You Judaizers are, says Paul, hypocrite, false brethren, false circumcision, evil dog spies. You are would-be messiahs, but you should be castrated, and on account of your false gospel, you and your false gospel can go to hell. This is what Paul said to the Judaizers in Antioch, and that is why all of this is going to escalate all the way back to Jerusalem. There are certain things that once said require a resolution involving the highest authority available in whatever sphere it is that we are discussing. Things that once said nobody needs to say with respect to no take-backs, like you did when you were a kid. It's understood. There is no taking it back. And there is no going back to a point prior to you saying that. And often this is bad. That's why as parents we tend to teach our children not to let things out of their mouth in an instant that will affect relationships far into the future. But here it's good. Because this conflict is critical. This must happen. Or the people of God will no longer be heralds of the true gospel because the true gospel will be lost. Paul has said things here. True things, but things that crossed the Rubicon. And so some astute observers reasoned rightly in verse 2 that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Yeah, because that's all the option that they have. In Acts 15, Paul carpet-bombed the Judaizers, and the chunks of earth blew from the ground and landed all the way back in Jerusalem. And maybe Paul had one of those dads that said, you know, never start a fight, kid. But if somebody else does start a fight, you better be the one who finishes it. Either way, he is certainly going to be the one who finishes this. And because of his ferocious response, the die is cast There will be no sweeping this under the rug or pretending this conflict away. Now, there is nothing here to say that Peter and James would have done that, would have tried to skirt this issue. I believe that the regression that was rebuked by Paul in Galatians was prior to the events of Acts 15, and I will attempt to prove this to you in the future. But I think that they repented of that some time ago. But let's say here, for the sake of argument, that they were the kind of men at present who would have tried to ignore this. Even if this were the case, Paul has taken that option away from them. And he has done so to the glory of God by calling these sons of the devil, hypocrite, false brethren, false circumcision, evil dog spies, who are would-be messiahs but should be castrated. And on account of their false gospel, they can go to hell and take their doctrines of demons with them. And everybody in this room ought to say on account of this, Amen! What these men have sought to keep in the dark as they lurked around the back door of the Antioch church selling them poison under the cover of darkness is going to be cleansed by the light of the Jerusalem council as they are guided and constrained by the word of God and led by the Holy Spirit of God. 
Paul once wrote this to the Ephesians in that general epistle. Chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Like say, for example, unless you're circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything becomes that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now there is a critical question for all of us in this. And that is, what has Paul risked in pushing this escalation? What happens if James and Peter succumb once more to the sort of man-pleasing that Paul has already rebuked them for in Galatians? And what if they render their judgment based upon that instead of the Word of God? You think Paul just walks away and goes, oh, okay, that's fine. The gospel is no longer of grace. We'll all just get along? No. No, what's going to happen in that instance is that the post-Protestant schism after the Reformation is going to occur about 1,500 years prematurely because he's not going to let that go. James and Peter are not his ultimate authority. He has already demonstrated that by opposing Peter to his face. This is affirm the gospel of grace or bust. Now that was not going to happen because as Peter and James acknowledge in their letter to the Antiochians, verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. This adjudication was never going to be subject to anybody's man-pleasing because a third person of the Trinity was going to take matters into his own hands personally given the absolutely critical nature of this at this juncture. But even so, did Paul know all of that ahead of time? I would think not. Would he not have at least considered the possibility that maybe a regression in Peter back to the sins that he had already rebuked in him was possible? And that therefore the church on earth might now as a result of this become church as? Of course he would have considered these things. And of course a schism of this kind at this juncture of the church's development would have been horrible. Wasn't great after the Protestant Reformation. It's hardly ideal to have seemingly endless denominations, but at this juncture would have been truly awful, unthinkable. But he pushes this conflict anyways. Because they, Paul and Barnabas, love the church, but they do not idolize it. Christ is king. Christ's gospel is king. And it's a lot like parenting, really. If you're not willing to lose the relationships with your children, and this comes more into play as they grow into adults, then you cannot effectively minister to them as Christians because in order to minister to them as Christians, you must say things that result of which may very well be that they shun you. Same thing here. Can't lead the church if you're not willing to say things that could potentially split it. And if that was true 
of the church on earth in the first century, how much easier should it be to employ these things in local churches? Consequential, yes. Equally consequential to this, no. No man who is not willing to ruin a church with the truth is worthy of leading a church. If the church is not a herald of the truth, then it is not what it ought to be anyways, and you may as well all go home. What are you keeping at that point? You sold your soul to the devil for a false gospel and everybody else's souls with it for nothing. Because now the church bears the name of Christ on the outside of the building in vain. It is merely a pretension. Well, it is the custom of weak men to defer to evil men and to justify this deference with feigned concerns for unity. It's a statement along the lines of we can't be so rigid or else we can't remain unified. But doesn't any unity in any group require adherence to some creed? Or else what is unity? Is it just occupying the same space together? No, then we're just free radicals floating around in space, creating friction as we bump into each other, and chaos. But Christianity, going into Acts 15, already has its greatest creed. And this was delivered by Peter for all to hear when God gave birth to the church. Acts 2, 38 through 40. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off and as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, Be saved from this perverse generation. That is the gospel. That is the source of the church's unity. And thus it is not Paul nor any like him that should ever be accused of sowing discord among the brethren. No, that charge should be laid at the feet of these son-of-the-devil Judaizers and all like them in every age. And there are certainly those like them in every age. Our mandate is to drag them into the light that their judgment might be known that the church might be sanctified, that the world might be warned, that the gospel might continue to be preserved. And it is that gospel that can alone accomplish the work of awaking sleepers and raising them from the dead so that Christ's light can shine on them. And I will say only in closing that if the light of the gospel has not shined on you yet, turn to it today. There is a reason why the true church of Christ on earth has gone to war to preserve this for 2,000 years. It is because your soul depends upon it, and so does ours. Turn to Christ even today, to his righteousness, to his righteousness alone, forsaking all other devices, forsaking any goodness in you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege that it is to study it. And we pray that you give us the grace to put it in practice. Lord, it is no small thing to risk what Paul has risked. It creates no small anxiety in us when we lay friendships, when we lay churches, when we lay 
relationships that have been fundamental to our lives on the line for the sake of the gospel, not knowing what the outcome will be. Give us the strength to do it so that we may deliver to our children a gospel that is actually capable of saving them. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.